There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Hello and welcome back to Talking of Books. Um, I am live in the studio with the wonderful Alison K. Williams, who is co-hosting in, um, in Isabel's stead today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Annabelle. All looking very Christmassy today. Also with us in the studio, Mark Lomas. Mark is a Dubai-based journalist, editor and broadcaster who has couchsurfed through Ukraine, broken bread with football fans in Iraq and appeared on a boxing reality TV show in the UAE. I'm going to loop back to that. Um, and he is a lecturer in journalism and media at Middlesex University, Dubai. He's also a freelance writer who contributes to the likes of ESPN, BBC, Esquire Vogue and GQ. I, of course know that all off the top of my head mark and didn't just read it hugely impressive hugely impressive hugely, hugely impressive. impressive um can i just loop back to that boxing reality tv show before we move any further with the books that we're going to talk about today why um i i, I was approached to do it actually um by a friend of mine who's a producer on the show he thought i might like to audition for the process and it was really grueling seven week process leading up to a final fight night unfortunately i didn't make it all the way to the final fight night um because i got concussion in one of my fights along the way but i did have one kind of preparation fight which i won um so i'm one and oh in my boxing career i always have to make sure i keep saying that undefeated um but yeah it was uh, it was an amazing experience some great people met and uh, but yeah i looked a bit silly i think in places but as does everyone on reality tv what makes this even more interesting to hear and wonderful for you to share with us on the show today is the fact that you're doing so in sparkly pink reindeer antlers <laughs> absolutely the most uh, the the perfect boxing attire i should have worn these when i did my ring walk. They would have protected you from the concussion. <laughs> they would. That oh, would have yeah. been a great idea. <laughs> Why not think of that? I'm painting a picture for you on the show today if you're tuning in um, to Dubai I 103.8. This is Talking of Books and we're about to talk about a chilly memoir, the memoir of Sir Chris Bonington, um, mountaineer extraordinaire, um, the David Attenborough of mountaineering, who's often referred to as. And it's a festive talking of book show, but the Christmas jumpers and hats are out in full force today because we are taking a mental journey somewhere rather cold. Um, if you'd like to actually see some of the sparkly festivities in the studio, you can also check us out on Facebook Live because we are live at the moment on Dubai Eyes 103.8 uh, Facebook page. So you can leave comments and you can ask questions there and we will get them and answer them for you as well so can you introduce us to this memoir mark yeah absolutely so um chris bonnington uh is probably one of britain's most well definitely one of britain's most celebrated uh mountains sir chris bonnington i should say rather than just chris bonnington um achieved some incredible things in his lifetime um has summited everest has led groups to summit everest the annapurnas uh became the first brit to do the north face of the eiger in switzerland um, I spent many years lecturing about mountaineering. Um, just a, it's a, a very inspirational book about someone who just was totally dead and is still totally dedicated to the craft of mountain climbing, which is not something that I'm, I'm very much into my sport, but mountain climbing, I don't really have kind of the technical knowledge. There are times in the book where it's a little bit jargony, but I think the overall kind of feeling you get is yeah of this guy who's just dedicated when he falls in love with mountain climbing he makes it his aim to kind of see the um see some of the best mountains in the world and to, to climb them and to to help other people with that experience as well uh, Alison, how did you find it did you know anything about uh, mountaineering and mountain climbing before you 
I know a little bit uh, because as a former trapeze artist and uh, rigger, I spent a lot of time in climbing stores and evaluating climbing equipment. So I did recognize a lot of the jargon because it's stuff I used in my previous career. But what I really loved is his delight in discovering something new in his career every time. Like there's a place about three quarters of the way through the book where he climbs something that apparently is not all that challenging by his standards, although I think it would still be quite challenging for me. And what he's excited about is it's a peak that's never been climbed before. Um, If you're just tuning in, we are talking about Ascent by Chris Bonington, a life spent climbing on the edge, the David Attenborough of mountaineering, according to The Times. He is coming to the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature next February. I'm incredibly excited. He's also going to be in conversation with Sir Ranulph Fiennes. So two explorers talking about their, their travels, their adventures together on stage at the same time, the same place. Absolute must see. I can't wait. That's going to be absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, both kind of stalwarts of exploration uh, for, for for Britain, I guess. Um, what were some of your favourite moments in this? And like, what, what period of time does it cover? Because memoirs can be snapshot or very focused on one particular time in someone's life, or they can be wide ranging. It is a very broad brushstroke of his life. It's his most recent book, so released in 2017. And he's written, I think, maybe 20 books over the years, kind of detailing, as you said, like more individual expeditions, um, such as the successful ascent of Everest in 1975. Uh, But this is really a broad brushstroke. He explores kind of some of his heritage as well, um, some of his ancestors who also traveled to distant parts of the world. So he kind of discusses whether you know it's in his blood whether it's in his genes this uh, this desire to explore new places which i thought was really interesting but yeah all the way through his career his successes his lows um and then kind of right up to the to the present day um one of the things i'm gonna i I would like to talk about in the book is kind of the the relationship with his wife as well um and i promised my wife today that i wouldn't cry when discussing this because i found it very emotional reading it in the book um because Chris talks a lot about how supportive his wife was of him pursuing his dream, which, you know, in the 60s to become a professional mountaineer, it wasn't really something that many people did. And she kind of indulged his passion throughout his life and throughout his career. Um, And then sadly, after 52 years of marriage, um, dies in 2014 uh, of motor neurone disease. Um, And that chapter in the book, which is entitled The Cruelest Challenge, um, really kind of gets to the humanity, I guess, behind it. Because, as I said, you know, sometimes you're reading about the climbs and it's almost disconnect, a a little bit of an emotional disconnect because he's so focused on talking about the technical aspects of the climb. And um, But then, you know, when it comes back to to discussing his wife, I think that's, like, really emotional part. Um, This one bit in the, when he's talking about conquering Everest, which, you know, for every climber is kind of, the pinnacle. Um, <laughs> it's the Everest. <laughs> it is the Everest um, of the climbing world. So it, I think it becomes a bit of an obsession for climbers. And there's one bit where he, t- he talks about his his wife talks about it. And he says, my obsession had uh, stretched the woman I uh, love close to her breaking point. She said that she felt she was a little cockle shell boat being tossed around in the wake of the great liner that was Chris plowing remorselessly through life. So, you know, he recognizes the sacrifices that she made Um and, you know, the fact he was away for, for long periods of time on these expeditions looking after, and she was looking after the children, you know, keeping friendships going at home while he was obsessively chasing this dream of, uh, of Everest, um, which he did eventually accomplish in 1975. And she was herself participating in his whole 
uh, the marketing of the career as well, mm. doing a lot of interviews with newspapers that she describes as, you know, the little wifey waiting at home <laughs> interviews, which I thought was really interesting. And and I think, too, that kind of an unsung hero in the book is actually Bonington's second wife, mm. Loretto, who helped him put together this book. And I think it's incredible that she has the generosity of spirit to help him write a, a, a big section that is basically a pay on to the beauty of his previous relationship. And it and it takes a really special person to be fully in support of you had this beautiful thing and I'm glad you had it and I'm going to help you share that with the world, even though it was not about me. Oh, it's getting it's very emotional. It's getting damp in <laughs> it's, here. It's funny though, isn't it? Because I mean, if I hold up a copy of the book, I don't know if you can see this on, on Facebook Live. I hope you can. But I mean, it's a picture of Chris going up a mountain. It's called Ascent, a life spent climbing on the edge. It's very clearly a book about a mountaineer. Mm-hmm. And it's chronological. So you start from his childhood and it works all the way through. When you start getting to these these emotional attachments, the relationship with his wife, you realize that it's so much more than just a book about mountaineering. And it gives you a slight clue to that on the back, but it does not, I don't think that the synopsis on the back does any justice to just the range that he describes in this memoir. So much of the book is about the sacrifices that other people made for him to get where he got. And I mean, we were we were saying earlier that one of the things that's a little bit weird is, oh, we're casually talking around the campfire and then Tony went and got, you know, swept away by an avalanche. And there's a lot of death in this book. Yeah. You know, Bonington says at one point he's the only mountaineer of his age who is still alive. And I think it's really interesting seeing, you know, the the women at home who took care of the family and looked after the house and looked after his his paperwork and the people on his expeditions, whether that's the hired Sherpas who hoisted all the equipment up the mountain and went ahead and set the ladders or, you know, the fellow climbers who, you know, well, somebody else died in that avalanche, not me. And, I, and it's really interesting how we tend to think of, oh, I climbed a mountain as a singular thing. But in fact, this book is so much about the triumph of the team. Absolutely. And I think also, if, if we look at Chris himself, there were times where he had to step back. You know, he was the leader of expeditions. And again, I think in, in your head, and in, in my head anyway, as sort of a, someone who doesn't understand mountaineering, I would expect that the leader of the, exhibition, uh, leader of the expedition is the first person to get to the top and stick the flag in. But that is just not the case at all. You know, he's actually, it's an organisational role and actually the glory, if you like, of reaching the top. He didn't even get in 1975. You know, the first summit of uh, the south face of Everest, southwest face of Everest, was something that he masterminded. He put the team together. But yet he, it wasn't him who took the final step up there. He never summited on that occasion. He summited for the first time 10 years later on, an, on a different expedition. And exactly that, that, you know, mountaineering, is it's a, it's a team sport, actually. It's not about the individual, which, you know, sometimes I think gets forgotten, particularly when you see films like kind of Free Solo and Dawn Wall that are focused mm-hmm. so much on that individual, that spectacular, individual, talented individual climber. But actually you're so right that it is this collective effort that kind of drives, drives people through. And it's so sad, you know, that he's lost so many peers and colleagues, teammates over the years. But it is like, it's incessant, you know, each of the major climbs that he does, he loses someone basically apart from one, you know, and that's, that's re- remarkable to deal with. But... You know, it's 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 a tough world. I think one one of the things I saw is he talks about exposure, which is kind of the danger. You know, the exposure you have to potentially falling off the distance between yourself and the and the bottom of the mountain. Um, and he discusses that. He mentions that as a thrilling mix of space and fear. 
talks about that it's three lives on half an inch of metal on some occasions and that is you know that is a really scary thing and it is like when i've watched well i don't know if you've watched dawn wall or free solar but literally you yeah. know, you're watching it through your fingers and i'm almost reading the book through my fingers sometimes thinking who is it who's going to go because you feel like you feel like someone is going to end up dying again and it does happen. And it's interesting that you bring up Free Solo. So uh, Free Solo is a documentary about a climber named Alex Honnold who climbs without buddies or equipment. So he is literally scrambling up the side of the mountain with with himself and his clothes and that is it. It is his hands and feet taking him up the mountain. And yet even between him and Chris Bonington, who has so much gear and teammates that he needs extra people whose only job is to carry things, there's still that same sense of danger and risk. You know, it's such a risky field that whether you are the one single guy with no equipment crawling up uh, in in uh, in America, or whether you are the British guy hiking up Everest with an entire expedition, the level of danger is very similar. And, and the conditions there are so harsh that the amount of equipment and team he has with him does not significantly reduce the danger to anyone involved. I think if you want to understand this well, this is an an exceptional book to start with because it's not just about the world of mountaineering as we've covered it's also about what happens you know to to the family life as well and and how that's impacted one of the things i liked about this i mentioned that it starts chronologically it it progresses chronologically it goes back and forth and it also starts with him at the age of 80 and it's one of my favorite bits of the book actually and that's him as an 80 year old attempting to climb something called the old man of hoy could you kind of describe that to listeners who aren't familiar with with that structure, yeah, definitely. The old man, uh, the old man of Hoy is—it's um, kind of just a big, towering piece of rock uh, that comes out of the sea in the Orkney Islands, in in kind of the north of Scotland. Um, and it's a very poignant kind of chapter that the first one, particularly uh, when we you know go through the rest of his story, because he first went there and he first climbed it after his son again another tragedy. His son tragically died at the age of three um, in an accident at the at, at home and. Soon after that, he went up the old man of Hoy, of Hoy of, and um, found that to be like kind of a semi-cathartic experience and to try and help him in that process. And then at this moment, when he's 80 and becomes what he's believed to be the oldest man to go up this structure, the old man of Hoy, uh, comes just a few months as well like after his wife has died. <laughs> so there's that extra kind of uh, poignancy there. He does the climb um, with Leo Holding, who was... When he was, when Leo was 11 years old, was the youngest person to climb that. So it's the youngest person to have climbed it and the oldest person to have climbed it together. There's actually a great video that goes alongside it as well because um, it was sponsored by Berghaus. Other outdoor sportswear brands are available. He climbed it first, I think, at the age of about 32. Yep, that's right. And then he reclimbed it at the age of 80 and they filmed the whole thing. And I think, understandably, he was a little bit anxious about whether or not he was going to be able to do it. And when they filmed it, they filmed his thoughts before, during and after. And this is what he had to say about the business of getting old. The business of getting old, in a way, it's a bit of a pig. You're you're stiffer and you're slower. Uh, you haven't got the same endurance as you had before. You can't achieve quite what you did before. But what getting to the top of the old man of Hoy is showing me is that one can go on doing it. One can go on doing it. He's an inspiration. I think this is a great book to read in the new year as well. If you if you feel like you need somebody to look up to, to inspire you, to, to go the extra mile. I think Sir Chris Bonington is a great role model. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, and again, if the the rest of that video, you can you can see it on YouTube, and it is it is very inspiring as he manages to do it. And he also, it's about the message that you know, even if your years are advancing, you can still you can still achieve things like that. And I think it's interesting that when when Chris uh, summited Everest um, in 1985, he was the oldest person to do it at the time. He was 50 years old. Now, the oldest person to have summited Everest is an 80 year old. Um, Yuchio Miura, Japanese climber who summited in 2013 at the age of 80. So it just shows that age is no barrier. It kind of, it, it reminded me actually of a, just a brief aside, and, and um, when, I, when I was just starting my career as a newspaper journalist, I remember interviewing a 92-year-old lady at my local, uh, uh, local gym who went swimming every single day, and you know, the article in the paper inspired loads of other people who, again, getting a little bit older, to get out there and do exercise, and I think that's a great message from both the book, from the video um, of Chris Bonington, that you know, age should be no barrier to continued active lifestyle speaking of journalism as well you spotted something quite interesting about how that comes through the book yeah definitely so i mean we're in a totally different era of journalism now particularly if we look at kind of uh, english fleet street journalism which had basically bottomless pockets in the 60s um so you had journalists and you, you had newspapers sending chris out on kind of expeditions helping fund some of his exp- earlier expeditions um particularly around europe you saw um, newspapers sending journalists to cover these ex- um, expeditions. Uh, it j- just it just wouldn't happen now. You know, it just wouldn't happen. The, the pockets aren't that deep anymore. Um, and it's interesting that Chris kind of becomes a photojournalist and then a written journalist himself and kind of learns that craft um, and ends up being able to write his own stuff rather than a journalist come in there as well. And his father was a Sunday Times journalist as well. So again, nature, nurture, um, I think it's interesting. Um, Alison, did any of that strike you? What other things did you pick up on in this memoir that you really enjoyed reading about? You know, I loved how when you want to do something that is as expensive and time-consuming as mountain climbing... I love how writing books about mountain climbing became kind of his his cycle of I need to make money in order to do this thing I love, but I need to write books about doing this thing I love in order to make money. You know, you need the money to do it, but you need to do it for the money. And I think that's a really interesting cycle and a really beautiful testament to how you can convey a powerful physical experience to the people who are not able to go and do it. And I, I think that's one of the joys of, of being a writer myself is you get to share the experience with the people who could not come or who would not come or who dare not come. I think it's interesting, though, how understated he is at times. You know, the end, the end, I was saying, the end of the chapter where he, he um, they successfully summit Everest in 1975, he describes it very simply as the most complex but rewarding organizational challenge I've faced and, you know, if you're thinking about what has gone on in that chapter to put that expedition together and the people who have died along the way, it's just such an understated way of saying it. And end. I can totally empathize with that because whenever I say, oh, I used to be in the circus, what people are fascinated by is, you know, clowns and trapeze artists and yet da 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 But what it really is, is a giant organizational challenge. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, there's, there's, and, and mountain climbing's like that, you know, so I love that, like, Chris Bonington, he, he touches on, you know, the glamour and the mystique of, you know, ooh, you know, craggy men climbing up big crags, 
And yet at the same time, he makes it clear that there is a lot of thought and paperwork that goes into this stuff. There is a lot of negotiating different personalities. You know, he talks in the book a little bit about times when members of the team do not agree and get cranky with each other about who is going to do what job, who is going to continue on. Should we go on or turn back? And it kind of ruins the climb, doesn't it? It ruins the experience. It doesn't. I think he's constantly chasing the camaraderie that comes with a good climb and a good team of people. Yeah, yeah. definitely. He struggles on a few of the climbs with the with the group of people he put together because, uh, yeah, I think, you know, we described it as a, as a team profession, but uh, I, I do think also there is quite a lot of competitiveness yeah. within mountaineering as well. So, again, who's going to be first to the summit and who's not going to be first to the summit? You know, for the, for some people that's important. That was never, comes across as never, ever being an important thing for Chris. That it was him who who did that, which I think is is another really great aspect of his personality. We mentioned uh, being in you know, nearly in tears because of some of the emotional parts of the book and also just in awe of this man and everything that he's accomplished. Like, there's, you know, within one page there's enough to fill the memoir of several people but it's the blasé nature of some of the things that he describes that I, I just ended up laughing out loud and people saying what's wrong with you I'm like well there's just you know casually mentioned of, of, of death and destruction and it's just it takes you completely by surprise sometimes in the picture section of of the book he describes one photo as first British ascent of the southwest pillar of the Petit Drew. And he says, Paul Ross in foreground, Hamish McInnes semi-conscious with fractured skull in the background. <laughs> and you don't even spot it because it really is far in the background and you're focusing on this other person in, in, in the foreground. And he just, he mentions it casually at the end. And there's no other explanation, just he's got a fractured skull and he, he's carrying on and that's that's what happened. Absolutely. And he, t- <laughs> he talks, I think it's in the chapter where, where they climb Everest in, in, in 75. He talks about having gone on an ex- a expedition down a canoeing expedition down the blue nile which it basically had several near-death experiences both with like angry local villagers and crocodiles in the water but it's like it's literally two paragraphs <laughs> and you feel like that could be a story in a book all on its own and just again you know he's had so many incredible experiences i think over the years one of my favorite moments as well was a an interaction that he had with uh, someone who i think you might have heard of um so he's basically in the early days of of his climbing um escapades he is going down a steep broad ridge and he's going downhill and he says he's always been fast downhill so was surprised to find a tall fellow right behind me i sped up taking giant leaps over the rocks and reached the bottom still with a mile to go to the car park this tall man was still on my heels but i went as fast as i could and just made it ahead of him we stood there hands on knees gasping for breath I had to hold back a bit, he said finally. I've got a big race next week. The penny dropped. The name I'd half heard was Roger Bannister, already a famous runner in 1953. (laughs) He made his first attempt on the four-minute mile that spring. I met him years later, having told the story many times, but he'd forgotten all about it. Of course he (laughs) had. Love that. So it's really interesting. Some of the early, uh, the early accounts of him getting into climbing as well. You know, he went up Snowdon, uh, not knowing what to do at all. Dragged a friend up. They hitchhiked up there. Um, ended up in an avalanche. His friend was wearing school shoes, school shoes to try and go up Snowdon. Um, and then, fantastically, his first proper climb is in Tunbridge Wells with a family friend called Cliff. So his climbing, <laughs> his real climbing career began with Cliff. I think that is a beautiful note to end our discussion of Ascent by Chris Bonington on. Um, Chris Bonington will be at the Emirates Airline Festival of Literature next February. He'll also be there with Sir Ranulph Fiennes in, in a session together. So you can see them on their own and also having a conversation together about their adventures. Um, also Gavin Thurston, I want to mention as well. So 
whose name you might not recognise, but whose work you have definitely seen. He's an award-winning cameraman specialising in wildlife and he's worked on 18 of Sir David Attenborough's series. So do check out those names. If you're looking for a last-minute Christmas gift, I think tickets to some of those um, and also the books would be a wonderful idea. Now, Mark, we've spoken about Sir Chris Bonington, but I know that you're excited about more than Sir Chris at the festival next February. Who else are you looking forward to seeing? Um, well, I'm very much looking forward to seeing Jeremy Hunter um, as I'm going to be moderating the session or introducing Jeremy to the session. Um, so Jeremy is a photo journalist. Again, you know, as a journalist myself, I, I really like it when uh, journalists get a lot of credit for their work. And uh, Jeremy's work is really interesting. You know, he's been a photo journalist for years, worked for The Times, The Telegraph, all the big names going around the world uh, taking photos. In particular, in the last couple of years, um, he went to North Korea, and that's what he's going to be talking about at the Emirates Island Festival of Literature. Um, he's talking about photographing the Ararang, I think I've pronounced that right, which is a large-scale uh, celebration in North Korea. Celebration slash propaganda, depending which way you, you look at it. But is, it's, is that what we call the mass games? Yes, the mass yeah, games. Yeah, the mass exactly. games. Okay, yes. so a million tiny gymnasts on the floor of a stadium all performing exactly in unison, and the stadium crowd has big colored cards that they turn up and the, you know, build scenes of, of famous, you know, North Korean historic moments. It looks insane, and uh, it's, a, it's a Guinness World Record for most number of gymnasts performing at the same time as well. Um, but yeah, just a really interesting look behind the curtain. North Korea is such a, a closed-off country still. We were talking about how you know, we'd both like to visit there. Um, it's incredibly interesting to see somewhere like that still existing in, in 2019 that's still so closed off, um, and I can't wait to hear kind of Jeremy talk a little bit more about that um, and you'll have some amazing photographs to show Incredible. in the session yeah. as well so really looking forward to that as well um, also if you'd like to learn how to write about your travels there is an opportunity to do that I think you're also introducing Stuart in this event as well so travel writing workshop with Stuart Turton that's happening on Friday the 7th of February at 2 o'clock at the Emirates Lip Fest next year and I really like this question what does it mean to be a travel writer in the age of cheap travel and Instagram <laughs> absolutely uh, I, you know I think everyone fancies themselves as a bit of a travel journalist or travel blogger now um but there is still craft to it you know i teach at middlesex university i've just taught this term actually a little bit about travel journalism and travel writing talking about how it's not just about taking pretty pictures of somewhere you know you have to be able to describe it vividly um stewart's work really does that you know i've had, had a little look at some of his work he's incredible at painting a picture and telling a story of a place through experience and through interactions with people not just this beach was amazing, this palm tree was pretty. You know, it's about the experiences of people when you go traveling. I well, think. and the experiences of the people who are going to read your work. Like, I think that might be the difference between our Instagram influencers slash bloggers and travel journalism mm -hmm. because with the bloggers and the influencers it's about this was my experience and you're living vicariously through me whereas journalism I think is more about putting the reader in the position of the narrator and showing them the country through your eyes I mean I think they're both valid forms of writing about travel but they're very different let, let's not start the influencer versus journalist debate because no, we'll, be, we'll be here all day let's long. Let's hold it there. Let's keep it lovely and festive and friendly on Talking <laughs> of Books today, shall we? Yes. So uh, Stuart Turton, just to recap, he'll be giving a travel writing workshop on Friday the 7th of February. So if you'd like your travel writing to be more memorable and meaningful, this would be a great um, 
workshop to sign up to and that's at the Emirates Lip Fest so emiratesLipFest.com for more information about that I do briefly want to leave you with um, a wonderful clip of Stuart talking about something that he's become a bit more famous for in recent years which is The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle now if you haven't heard of this book I don't actually know how because I haven't been able to escape updates about this since it won, won the Costa First Novel Award I, I think haven't last heard year. of this book 2018, yeah. amazing I have not heard of this book <laughs> Um, so basically it's uh, Agatha Christie meets Groundhog Day um, and it took him months to kind of plan it out and it's it's just become massively successful if you're looking for something that's cosy but also keeps you on your toes and is, a, is an entertaining read for, for um, the Christmas period then I would highly recommend this um, but enough from me this is Stuart talking about the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle it's an Agatha Christie style murder mystery with all that good Agatha Christie stuff so the isolated manor house the upper class guests with secrets and then the murder at the end of the day of Evelyn our protagonist has been invited to a ball and every time he doesn't solve the murder of Evelyn the day starts over again the trick is every time he does start the day again he's in the body of a different guest in the house so he keeps bumping into future hymns and past hymns and they don't all want the same thing which is a bit strange for him the groundhog day the sort of body swapping the all that sort of stuff that took me about 10-12 years to come up with that was my own way of writing one of these stories but doing something with it that was special you get all the information as our protagonist gets it. You get every clue as he gets it. You even get most of his thought processes as you go along. You're playing along. And I think Agatha Christie did that with every one of her books. Like, for me, each of those was effectively a board game. I would sit down and play opposite Agatha, and she would lay down very meticulously her board and her pieces, and you play a little game with clue with her in each novel. And that's why I think that's why I loved them, and that's what I tried to recreate. Stuart Turton there talking about the seven deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and he'll be talking about that book and doing a travel writing workshop at the Emirates Lip Fest next February. I love what he said there about sitting across from from Agatha and playing a game of Clue. I just I love that and it really comes through in the book so I highly recommend that if you're looking for a book maybe for yourself and it's not all it's not all about giving. I gotta (laughs) say Annabelle you have just given me the greatest Christmas present ever because I had never heard of that book. Now I absolutely want to read it. I am going to go and get that book so thank you so much. That's a beautiful present. You are very welcome. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.